these, uh, it, it broke it out in systematic theology. So all these, uh, these uh, subjects we've studied, like canonicity, inspiration, then inerrancy, and history, English Bible, they all are going to be found in written form on in the written library under bibliology. And also, these, uh, I've, I've done these, recorded these classes when I was in Iowa as well. I've, done, I've taught these subjects in the past. So that was probably over ten, almost 10 years ago now. So uh, this is a very important study. Uh, it's part of these uh, foundational things that we need to know. And uh, you know, all, all areas of theology are very important to us. Uh, and not just, uh, there's certain doctrines that seem more exciting to others, like the day of the Lord or the rapture, but every doctrine is important in the Word of God. And we're trying to, God the Holy Spirit's trying to build a spiritual house in our soul. So uh, the more you, the more you can get a, a working knowledge of all these doctrines, okay, like inspiration or canonicity, uh, it's going to, your faith, your, your, your assurance, your faith, and your, you, uh, the fact to be able to use, be used mightily by God when you know these things and have a working knowledge of things. You don't have to be a scholar, but you do need to know, have a working knowledge of these things. Like, why do we believe the Bible is inspired by God and <clears throat> why we, certain other views are not biblically based? So these things are very important. As I said before in the series of canonicity, uh, we need to understand why we believe what we believe for our own selves to build that edification complex in our souls. And then also we need to be able to understand why we believe what we believe because we're trying to help others in the body of Christ that might not know these things or not be familiar with these things. And then also to defend the faith, we need to know why we believe what we believe and, uh, and use, uh, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so heart, and then be able, but when we do that, we'll be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so everything is on. Uh, everything is like a, it's a built upon one thing after uh, one brick after on top of another. You're building this house. So uh, we're going to wrap up our study of uh, inspiration tonight, uh, the seventh hour, and we'll be looking at erroneous views of inspiration. And uh, and before we look at those erroneous views of inspiration and wrap up our study of this subject, uh, we need to go over some things about what is our view of uh, of inspiration. But first of all, if you look at your Bibles, look at Second uh, Timothy. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and uh, we're reading from the NIV for those who are on the recordings. All scripture is God-breathed, great translation, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that the word of God is absolutely critical uh, for your spiritual growth and uh, for servanthood. Every single one of us are in Christian service. It does it, not just the pastor, but everybody is in Christian service. I remember Jay Vernon McGee teaching this. I know the Colonel taught this, and other people uh, that the every once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you got a gift, and uh, that gift will manifest itself as you practice the command to love one another. And uh, if you notice that uh, Paul talks about love, First Corinthians thirteen, after talking about spiritual gifts in chapter twelve of that book. So uh, basically, I like to use the analogy I used to give the kids in the prep school that uh, the, uh, operating in God's love, practicing the command to love one another, is the gas that runs the car, and the car is the spiritual gift. So uh, when we learn the Word of God, we're, get, we're, we're actually learning how to use our gift. Remember, the function of my spiritual gift is actually helping you to function in your gift. And so the more you learn the Word of God, the more you become uh, versed in, in the full counsel of God, 
Uh, that's, uh, then you're going to really make a great impact for God, whether you're, you're a teacher in the prep school or whatever you're doing in the church that nobody might even know about. And just even, forget about just that, but what about praying and being a prayer warrior? The greater the, the, you know the Word of God, the greater your uh, effectiveness in prayer will be because uh, to be a great prayer warrior, you must know the Word of God. And, to, and because the Word of God reveals the Father's will, and that's what we're supposed to pray according to. Also remember, follow Jesus in the apostles. Jesus started off with him. He was mighty in the Word. He used Scripture to deal with his enemies. He deal, used Scripture to deal with his trials and tribulations. He used Scripture to wage war against the devil. And that we are to follow in his footsteps. We're to become like Christ. So the more we know God's Word, uh, the, the better off we'll be. So all Scripture is God-breathed. We come to that fundamental conclusion. That's what the Bible teaches about itself. We see it's it, throughout the Old Testament. Thus say the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And the Old Testament prophets. And you see it in Hebrews. The Holy Spirit says this. Or Revelation 2 and 3. Listen to what the Spirit is saying, Jesus said. So the Spirit speaks to us through the original languages of Scripture. Uh, that's the revelation God gave us in the original languages of Scripture in the prophets of Israel and the apostles. Okay? And the authors of the, the, the writers of the New Testament. So uh, now what we get is illumination. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 23. And he talks about the Holy Spirit giving us illumination as to regards to the revelation that we already have. So all we get is illumination and understanding about what the scriptures are, what we've already received through the human authors of scripture. So all scripture is inspired by God. It's not the, the product of a man's imagination. It's a human book. And it's also a divine book. And we'll, at the end of this lesson, we'll be talking about several different things as it makes clear that this Bible, what we have, is a divine book, not just a human book. So it's in my translation of this very, uh, which is going to be, uh, I'll refer back to, but uh, you see this, it says in my translation, each and every portion of Scripture. We talked about this when we studied this verse in this subject. Each and every portion of Scripture is, 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 does possess as an eternal spiritual truth the characteristic being God-breathed. So every portion, that means Obadiah is important. That means Jude is important. Some people like to cherry pick and like the, 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 they, they like certain books, like Revelation. I, have, I can't tell you how many people ask me, have you taught Revelation? In fact, somebody was talking, talking about me, uh, asking me, Did I, have I taught Revelation yet? I said, I haven't, I've gone through the whole book. I've referred to it many times. But that's the kind of thing people want the, in our day and age. They want the exciting, the, you, know, the, the, you know, the bullets flying and everything, the, you know, the, the final Armageddon campaign. That's great, and it's in the Word of God, and we just study it. But uh, there's other, other books in the Bible that are just as important. God put them in there for a reason. So Obadiah is important, and so is Romans important, and so is Philemon important, and the Gospel of Matthew is important, and Exodus is important, and Leviticus is important. People don't realize it's in there for a reason. So uh, you should have an attitude that whatever the book is, I'm going to be there when it's taught. That's the way I was, uh, was taught, and that's the way, I, I mean, to me, if it's all the book is inspired by God, I'm going to show up. I don't care if it's my pastor was teaching on, on a passage in Leviticus or Ecclesiastes. You know, I was there even though at first I didn't, you know, what could this book give me? Well, you know what? I, when I sat through the study, I said, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't know this. And, you know, when I studied, like, for instance, Obadiah, uh, I was like, wow, 
this is a really, really cool book. And I was really excited to be able to teach it a second time. I never thought I would, but here I am. And I love this, it's a, it's a great book. Like, and Jude was a, is an excellent book as well. Once I got into the details of the book. And so all scriptures God breathed. So it says in my translation again, 2 Timothy 3.16, each and every portion of scripture does possess as an eternal spiritual truth. There's a gnomic present there with the, uh, with the verb, which I uh, expressed with the phrase, does possess as an eternal spiritual truth. It's an axiom, a spiritual axiom. It's true all the time about scripture. So each and every portion of scripture does possess as an eternal spiritual truth, the characteristic of being God-breathed. So then it goes on to say, consequently, it does possess as an eternal spiritual truth, the characteristic of being useful for teaching, for conviction, for tr correction, for training, which is related to righteousness. Notice, notice he's talking in context to a pastor, Timothy, who is his delegate to the Ephesian Christian community in the Roman province of Asia. And so he's telling Timothy, this is his last words to Timothy, uh, probably, and so he's telling him, this is what the pastor needs to know about scripture. It's useful for teaching, for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness. So there'll be times when you hear me and you'll be convicted because you're guilty in a certain era. That's okay. If it was not, if you'd never get convicted, I would say you might be Jesus here because everybody gets convicted. I'm the first guy that gets hit is me because I'm right in the study all day. So if I'm failing an area, I'm going to get hit right between the eyes. Okay? So it's, I have to, this is how you know because many churches, are filled today, thousands of people, and but they do not have any conviction. They're being taught by people who are just blowing smoke at them, and they don't really want to know the truth about themselves. The Bible is a mirror. It's like, you know, when I was a teenager, when you had acne, the last thing you wanted to do was stand in front of the mirror with a bright light, you know? So that's what the Word of God does. It shines a light on all our... And the reason why God does that is because He's trying to help us to become more like his son and stay away from those areas that are ugly, that are sinful. So we are going to be convicted at times. Some people might be encouraged by what they heard because they're not guilty of what is being taught. So when you get convicted, be objective like we all need to do and grow spiritually. A lot of people in our culture don't like to, that, to have the truth about themselves taught. And you know, it's like uh, my teach, uh, my baseball coach, uh, Billy Jacobs, great, one of my favorite baseball coaches, junior, uh, JV in high school. And, uh, you know, he used to say, don't have rabbit ears. Because when he corrected you and you screwed up on something, he, he expected you to take it like a man and not get rabbit ears and, you know, you know get so, so hypersensitive, which our culture is filled with hypersensitive people who don't want to have, the, they want somebody to tell how wonderful they are and never say or correct them and tell them they're wrong. If you really love somebody, you'll tell them when they're wrong, but you do it in gentleness, knowing that you should treat others the way you don't want to be treated. So you have to be, it's a skill to be able to correct people and uh, with the Word of God. So for uh, the Word of God is profitable, useful for teaching, for conviction, for correction, and for training, which is related to righteousness. And then it says in verse 17, the purpose of which is that the person belonging to God, that would be us, the church age believer, would possess the characteristic of being competent. And so a man, a man who's a, a pastor has to be competent in the word of God. If he, I don't care if he has the gift, if he's not competent, he shouldn't be up there teaching God's people. This is serious business to stand before 
God's people and teach the word of God because you're going to be held to account. Every single one of us that are pastors. And, you know, I see some pastors up there, they don't really take seriously their job because if they did, they'd be in the word of God and I can tell when they're not studying and I can tell when they're not, they're not knowing their stuff and they're up there flying by the seat of their pants. And that is dangerous. It's like having somebody do brain surgery on you who's never gone to medical school. That's it. And how much more serious it is when we talk about the soul. Forget about the, the physical body, but what about the soul? So this is a dangerous business that we're in, and this is a serious business we're in, and the warfare and the angelic conflict is a battle for the soul. So you and I have to be on my game and be competent. So when I come up here, I'm ready to go. And every man should be that way. We are to be competent. And, it's all, and then it goes on to say specifically, by equipping for every kind of action which is divine good and quality and character. We're to produce divine good. But we can't do that if we're not exercising faith in what the Spirit's telling us and then obeying the Spirit-inspired commands that we see in Scripture. When we do those things and obey the Scripture which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we're going to produce divine good because our motivation comes from the Word of God. We give, we serve, okay? We pray because the motivation is from what the Spirit's telling me in Scripture. Not what the flesh says or what the devil says. Because people all have their certain motivations for doing things, but God's word, Hebrews 4.12, you know, he knows, he, 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 knows uh, your, uh, he, he judges our thoughts and our intentions, our motivations in life. So this leads us to the, 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 um, the definition that we have of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration contends that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human office of Scripture that without destroying their individuality, their literary style, their personal interests and their vocabulary, but uh, we see that uh, God's complete and connected thought towards man was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture. So I, I, I lost out the last, last half of it. So again, the doctrine of inspiration intends that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human authors of Scripture that without destroying their lit individuality, literary style, their personal interest, their vocabulary, God's complete and connected thought to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, not the modern translations or the King James. That's just foolishness. When it talks about this, it's talking about original languages. That's what it's talking about. When it talks about in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture, every portion of Scripture is God breathed. So the original languages of Scripture we pointed out contain the very words of God and therefore bear the authority of divine authorship. And inspiration means God used, and actually inspiration is the means, we pointed out, that God used to reveal himself through the Bible, whereas revelation is concerned with the divine origin of Scripture and the giving of truth to men. So the Word of God, in its original languages, is the vehicle by which God reveals himself to mankind. Now, don't be upset about in original languages, because as I said before, the modern translations, the NIV, the NRSV, the New American Standard, uh, the, uh, the, the, the today's NIV, uh, the Net Bible, the ESV, all these modern translations, they are, you're getting the Word of God. You're getting the Word of God. I know that they go through these books in every single word in the Greek text or the Hebrew text, whatever book I'm working in, and I'm, I'm fascinated how wonderful these translations are. And something might, some translation might be lacking in, a, in an er, certain era. You got these other translations to fill in the gap. So you're getting the word of God. 
Okay? So, in other words, inspiration is the process by which God worked through the human authors without destroying their individual personalities, vocabularies, and writing styles to produce divine, authoritative, inerrant writings. I find it fascinating. You look at John. John's vocabulary in the Greek is very simple. In fact, first uh, Greek students, that's what we read. You read first John, or second and third John. His vocabulary is easy. But then you go to Paul, and you read like first and second Corinthians, like second Corinthians get pots, like wow, or Romans. I remember going to Romans, like, oh my gosh, this guy is like brilliant. <laughs> I mean, just look at it, just forget about the spiritual aspect, this guy is brilliant with his, the language. But then you go to places like Genesis, which is actually brilliant as well. If you just look at it as, a, as literary stuff, just from a literature standpoint, it's fascinating. Genesis, Exodus, Moses was magnificent. And so uh, these things, the, these people were different in their, in their personalities, their vocabulary. They were not, you know, cookie cut. You know, there wasn't a certain individual that wrote scripture. He, God could take any type of personality. And I venture to say that the different types of personalities, if you look at it from a psychological point of view, that people are, that psychology breaks people out, I bet you God took every, every type of personality you want to use write, to write scripture. He used King Solomon, and he used farmers. Okay, guys used, he used guys like Amos and Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter. He used John, one of the sons of thunder, James, his brother. He used all these people, okay, who were different from each other. And God was able to use them to bring forth this full counsel to his people. I find that absolutely fascinating. And there's evidence that this is what he did in, in, in Scripture. So the expression, when we talk about this is related to the different views of Scripture. Though we, we noticed that in one of our, we noted in one of our sessions here with regards to the subject of inspiration, when we talked about verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, the expression plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y for those on the, on the podcast, this expression plenary inspiration expresses the view of biblical interpretation or inspiration, excuse me, that contends that God is the ultimate author of the Bible in its, in, in, uh, in its entirety. Now, this means that God's superintending work and inspiration extends to the whole Bible and to each part of the Bible, as we pointed out. But verbal, that signifies the words of the original languages of Scripture, whereas plenary, it means full or complete as opposed to partial. So, plenary inspiration guarantees that all that the church has come to affirm as Scripture is both authoritative and helpful for Christian belief in practice. Thus, if you put it all together, as we pointed out, verbal plenary inspiration expresses the idea that each and every word, each and every word in the original languages of Scripture are inspired by God who gave full expression to his thoughts in the original languages of Scripture. Notice that every single word. Now, this is interesting, I'll tell you. When I'm going through, like right now, I'm working through, I'm working on Ephesians, which we're going to teach here eventually. And I'll tell you what, even the books I've done in the past, like an Obadiah or Habakkuk or Haggai, one of those books of Daniel, I didn't pass over any word because every word, every single word was put there by the Holy Spirit for a reason. And when you pay attention and have respect for the scriptures and do that, God shows you some really amazing things in his word. And so, and so, that I, so verbal plenary inspiration, what we believe which is orthodoxy, 
Orthodoxy means what the church believes and is affirmed for centuries that is biblically based. Okay, heterodoxy is false doctrine. This is sound doctrine. We're going to show you some views that are not sound doctrine related to inspiration, and which will prepare you when you see, you'll be able to identify these things and be able to uh, refute them in your own mind or maybe to help somebody who's going drifting in the wrong direction. And there's a lot of Christians that are drifting in a lot, wrong direction in this day and age by some of the things I hear being taught from pulpits. So verbal plenary inspiration expresses again the idea that each and every word in the original languages of scripture are inspired by God who gave full expression to his thoughts in the original languages of scripture. Now, as I said before, there are many scholars and as a result Christians who disagree with our verbal plenary view of inspiration. Very important something. The scholar, you may say, well, the scholar, well, the scholar is very important. You know, God's given us certain men with, I call it a gift of wisdom, really, is what I think it's from, scholarly people. Now, listen to me. What's being said, by, taught by the scholars, okay, because I rub elbows with these guys, okay, and one of the things is, I see, is that you see, what you're seeing today in, in, in biblical scholarship, it trickles down to the pulpit, and then it trickles down to the congregation. So, it's very, so it's very important, it's very important that you understand that just because the person's a scholar and has a, deg has a degree, and there's nothing wrong with a degree, I'm saying don't, everything has got to be tested by scripture because there are a lot of very smart men who are teaching false doctrine to this day. And they had degrees, and they, got, they could know the Greek and the Hebrew, and they don't interpret it correctly. Why is that? It's called the spirit not being sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. Every time you sit down to, to study the Word of God as a pastor and a member of the congregation, your own private sanctified time alone with God, or before we, before we, st we study the Word of God, we take a moment of silent prayer. We're pray well, I want to pray before we go in to teach the Word of God, you hearing, receiving the Word of God, and before I study it, I pray. The Spirit is so important, and so it's very important. So you also, as, a, as an interpreter, you've got, and, a, and, a, and a, as a Christian and as a pastor, of course, you've got to be sensitive to the fact that you are a sinner. You're susceptible, no matter how talented you might think you are or how gifted you might be, but you can be fall in the wrong direction, go in the wrong direction. Humility is everything. Everything. Humility is everything. So. You, you, humility starts when you say, Father, I need help to understand this passage. I need help to learn this from the pastor. I need help in applying this in my life. So every prayer is so critical and the Spirit's direction is so important. So there are a lot of great scholars throughout the centuries up to our present day that are teaching bad views of inspiration and it's not biblically based. And the first of these we have is, uh, and a lot of these are also what we call liberal theologians, as I pointed out, which they don't believe in the supernatural, like the, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, the, their liberal theologian, it's, we're not talking politically in a political context, spiritual context, a, a, a theology context, a liberal theologian we studied, uh, I think it was probably last week or a couple weeks ago, is someone who doesn't believe in the supernatural. Therefore, he wouldn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that this book is a supernatural book. Many don't believe that. So natural inspiration, the natural inspiration view, the first we're going to look at denies the supernatural element in biblical inspiration and that it contends that the human authors of Scripture were basically men of extraordinary genius who possessed a special insight into moral and spiritual truth. 
Again, the natural inspiration view denies the supernatural element in biblical inspiration in that it contends that the human authors of Scripture were basically men of extraordinary genius who possessed a special insight into moral and spiritual truth. I can tell you that some men in Scripture that I read and from their, their vocabulary, the way they write, they weren't geniuses. They were not geniuses. All of them, not all, I think Paul was a genius. I think Moses was a genius by virtue of his, his, his use of language. But everybody, like Peter, I don't think Peter was a genius. I'm not saying he was a spiritual giant. He was, which tells you something. You could be a spiritual giant and not be a genius. You don't need to be genius to be a great Christian. That's what the world would say you need. I let people say, well, this person would be a great Christian. And they're, you know, they're, now I always say, what you think may be a great Christian, God has a different idea. I think some people say, well, this person's very morally make a great Christian. No, those people can be very bad. They can be self-righteous. They can be the most self-righteous people. They were the worst Christians. I find the people who are the best Christians, in my experience, and that's, not for everybody, I'm sure, but the people who lived one heck of a life. I mean, they were like, uh, they were out partying, you know, hanging out with strippers and all kinds of stuff. Some of those people and the drunks and they're hanging on the drugs, those people turned out to be the best Christians because they knew, I'm screwed up. I'm a mess. I need Jesus. They're humble. Whereas the, self, uh, the, hum uh, the person who's a moral person, you know, the little prude, you know, those people... Lloyd make the worst Christians many times, and they cause the most trouble. So, and they get involved in legalism. So this view of natural inspiration argues that these men who wrote the books of the Bible through their unique abilities, just like an individual might write any book. Those who adhere to this view believe that human authors, the human authors of Scripture, wrote about God in the same way Shakespeare wrote literature. Thus, this view contends that they wrote by their own will. And we know that's not the case. Uh, what does it say in second, uh, hold your place in, uh, you don't have to hold your place in second Tim, uh, Timothy, but look at second Peter real quick. Chapter one. And look at verse 20. Second Peter 120, we've been to this passage several times as well. Second Peter 120. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So those who adhere to the natural view of inspiration, uh, they believe that the human authors of Scripture wrote about God in the same way Shakespeare wrote literature. Thus, this view of natural inspiration, contends that they wrote by their own will. No, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired them to write what they wrote. So spiritual, here's another uh, false view, uh, false doctrine, S a spiritual or mystical illumination view of inspiration goes a step farther than the natural view of inspiration. Uh, it, this view, the spiritual or mystical illumination view, they call it, of inspiration, goes a step farther than natural inspiration in that it conceives of the writers as more than natural geniuses and that they were also spirit-filled and guided. This view contends that anyone can write scripture who is illuminated by the spirit. There's the degree inspiration uh, of view. It adheres to the inspiration of scripture, but it also adheres to the idea that some parts of the Bible are more inspired than others. Kind of what we call the canon within a canon. That's false too, though it is true 
that some parts of Scripture are more relevant than others to certain groups of people, like the church. But as we saw in my translation, for sure, because mine brings out this, 2 Timothy 3.16 rejects this view, teaching that all Scripture, each and every portion, is equally inspired and accurate, God-breathed, and is all-important place, and has an important place in uh, the overall revelation from God. Now, the partial view of inspiration is a false view of inspiration because it teaches that some parts of the Bible are inspired and some parts are not. And uh, that's not what my Bible says. We just saw in 2 Timothy, each and every portion of Scripture is, is inspired by God. So this partial view of inspiration, they say that the parts of the Bible uh, related to matters of salvation, listen to me carefully, they say parts of the Bible related to matters of salvation and faith are inspired. But those parts that deal with history, science, chronology, or other non-faith matters may in fact be an error. And you know what? As we'll see a little later, let's just take archaeology. It confirms many things in art we find today in archaeology confirm a lot of things about the Bible that the Bible asserts. Like Jehoiakim, who was taken out uh, the, in, the, uh, in, this, in this fifth cycle of discipline uh, in uh, Babylon, and he was, uh, you know, the, the, the southern kingdom we were teaching on uh, in, in Obadiah. They went to Babylon for 70 years. Where's the evidence for him? Archaeology has evidence for him in Babylon. They got his name on a tablet somewhere. They know all of it. So the Bible, like they, I used to say there was, there was a guy like Dr. Luke. His, his book, his gospel, and, his, and the book of Acts were roundly criticized like in the 19th and 20th century that he's not accurate historically. <laughs> well, well, what happened was this guy named Sir William Ramsey, who was one of the famous archaeologists of his day in the 20th century, he decides to check this out. He became a Christian. Luke is a fantastic historian. He doesn't make any mistakes. <laughs> you could try. He was over and over again. He was proven right, and he still. And there's still certain areas that they they question. But overall, that issue about Luke has kind of been buried, especially with Sir William Ramsey becoming a believer. <laughs> so everything the Bible says, if it says something about Nebuchadnezzar and his court, and we read the Book of Daniel, it's true. It's fact. Now, it might not be borne out right now that we can confirm that someplace, but later on it can be confirmed maybe like in archaeology. But over and over again, it doesn't matter if it talks about, you know, the creation of the heavens and the earth, time, matter, space, continuum in Genesis. It's accurate. It's accurate. Now listen to me, this is very important. The Bible is not speaking of science as we think in science in the 21st century. There's certain things like matters of precision that we have, especially with guys who are engineers and stuff, because I've had friends with engineers, and they're very, like, uh, very about uh, precision. That's how we are, okay, with science and everything and how we make our anything here, okay? You guys are involved in a lot of stuff, and you're, everything's about precision. They didn't always, they didn't think about stuff the way we did. Their minds were not like ours in the 21st century. So don't try to impose 21st standards on the Old Testament writers. They didn't have a clue what you would be talking about. That doesn't mean they couldn't get it, communicate accurately with the creation account, because they did. 
but they weren't thinking in 21st century terms. And I find a lot of people involved in science, got friends who are deep in science, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, Job was not thinking about like the 21st century thing like you're thinking of. You're imposing your ideas onto the text of Job. Job was writing poetry there about something that did happen in the angelic realm with uh, Job. But he wasn't, you know, he makes, makes certain assertions about creation, but he's not thinking, he wasn't thinking, he didn't have the 21st century mind of precision like we have. So you'll be very careful about that. Always interpret the Bible. Let the writers speak from their own historical context. This is like anything, like the founding fathers, you know, the United States of America, the Constitution. I don't know if you realize this. I mentioned this in the past. But when people go to interpret the Bible, it's all what you, it can say whatever you think it says. They don't believe in authorial intent. This is very important. It's even in the public discourse and politics with the, the Constitution. This is very important what's going on. It's very good. It's very bad, dangerous. They're teaching this in the, in the colleges and universities that it's whatever, they, they, well, we can't ever really know what they really meant. The founding fathers or the biblical writers really understood the authorial, the authorial intent. What was their intent when they wrote? We can't really know that. That's false. Of course you can so they, they, but they're saying it's whatever you, you can make it whatever you want it to be. And that's what they're doing with the Constitution. You don't realize what's going on. It's like unbelievable. Are you kidding me? I think that, so it's up to us to find out what, you know, what the, 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 the writers of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and go back. And I mean, that's not that far away from us in history as the, as the Bible, the biblical authors. But that's some of the things that are going on. It's what you want it to be. Okay, so again, the uh, the partial the uh, the partial view of inspiration is a false view of inspiration because it teaches that some parts of the Bible are inspired and some parts are not. And again, as I said before, uh, this erroneous view contends that even though some material in the Bible may be factually an error, God still preserves the message of salvation in the Bible. There's a guy named Karl Barth who is very uh, was very big in in, in Christianity uh, today. Let me. And he's, he thinks that some parts of Scripture are, are, are in error. Now, how is he a big th a theologian if he gets that wrong? But here's, here's this guy. I'll give you an idea of who he was. Uh, let me see. Get a little uh, definition on this guy. Quite influential. Karl Barth. It's, was one of, this is from my uh, pocket dictionary of theological terms. One of the most influential 20, 20th century theologians, Karl Barth, is often credited with being the father of neo-orthodoxy, which we'll talk about at the end of this service or dialectical theology, he calls it. Barth is known for three main contributions. First, he emphasized the absolute transcendence of God, contrary to liberals who emphasize God's imminency. Second, he understood truth to rise out of the clash of opposing ideas, finite with infinite, eternity with time, God with humans. And finally, he placed Christ at the center of his theology, thus reversing the human-centered liberal theology that preceded him. However, he had an incorrect view of Scripture. He didn't, he thought there were, there were errors in some that the human authors of scripture had. What? And he's considered a big time theologian of the 20th century? From whose perspective? For me, it's like, you got that wrong? You're telling me that there's errors in the Bible which is related to our subject of inerrancy? The Bible doesn't have any errors. The problem is you, not God. So we see that the partial view, go back to my slide here and give this other point to you. The partial view of inspiration clearly rejects both verbal inspiration and plenary inspiration. That's why I went through verbal plenary inspiration earlier. So, let's move on to another one. 
The conceptual view of inspiration is also a false view of inspiration because it believes that the concepts or ideas of the writers of the Bible are inspired, but not the words. Thus, they contend that God communicated the concepts to the human author, but not the words. What did we just read in 2 Timothy 3.16? Each and every portion of Scripture is God-breathed. Every word. But these people, the conceptual view, they think the concepts are right, are inspired by God, but not all the words. So, God, here's another view, dictation view. And the dictation view of inspiration maintains that the entire Bible was dictated word for word by God and that the human authors of the Bible were passive in the same way as secretaries or stenographers who sat and wrote down what was given to them. Now, I mentioned this in the past. There was some dictation that Moses took, but pretty much everybody, including Moses, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God used their, God was able to communicate with perfect accuracy in the original language of Scripture, his complete and connected thought to mankind without destroying their literary a skill or, or individuality or their personal likes and dislikes or coercing their volition. God used them right, he prepared for them to write down in scripture what he wanted them to write. Okay? So, although some parts of the Bible were given by dictation as when God gave the Ten Commandments, the books of the Bible reveal a distinct contrast in style and vocabulary which would indicate that the authors were not mere robots. So that point there, everybody is different, as I said before. They have different literary skills, each writer of Scripture. If one reads the Greek New Testament, one will find that the Apostle John's writing style, as I mentioned, uh, and vocabulary is completely different than Paul's or Peter's. So therefore, if the dictation view is true, the style of the books of the Bible would be uniform, but they're clearly not. And then finally, the, uh, the Barth view, the neo-Orthodox or Barthian view, they call it, argues that the Bible is not the Word of God, but only becomes the Word of God through a special encounter when God speaks to a person in some kind of subjective experience, or in other words, the Bible only witnesses to the Word of God, but is not the Word of God. They, they uh, contend that the Bible is enshrouded in myth, necessitating a demythologizing. Remember a guy named Rudolf Boltman he says we ought to demythologize scripture. The resurrection is a mythology. So the, basically, they don't want the, want the Bible to speak for itself. And this is everywhere, as we know. They, nobody wants the Bible to speak for itself because it, 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 it confronts their worldview. So for instance, if you don't believe a resurrection, you don't believe in the supernatural, you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe that. And you would not believe that, that God inspired the scripture, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because your worldview says the supernatural cannot take place. Miracles cannot take place. But yet we have evidence and witnesses in the scriptures of people who witnessed miracles. Namely, the biggest one, resurrection. That's what the apostles were telling, in the, telling us in the gospels. P, uh, uh, Paul, Peter, John, they were eyewitnesses it, to, to it. So let these guys speak. So, but, so if the evidence is there, that's why you, say, you hear me say, go where the evidence leads. So if you go where the evidence leads and you listen to the witnesses and they two, two, attest, they, they two testify to a man like the resurrection and they agree, I think you have to take it seriously. You know, beyond a shadow, truth, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you were in a courtroom 
Jesus, we defi- uh, the, the, they would have the, the, the jury would have to say, Jesus rose from the dead. Because <laughs> the evidence is overwhelming. So neo-Orthodox or Barthian view argues that the Bible is not the word of God, but only becomes the word of God through a special encounter when God speaks to a person in some kind of subjective experience. Or, in other words, the Bible only witnesses to the word of God, but is not the word of God. So they contend, again, that the Bible is enshrouded in myth, and it has to be demythologized. They think it's mythology. So, for example, whether or not Christ actually rose from the dead in time and space is unimportant to the neo-Orthodox adherent. The important thing is the experiential encounter that is possible, even though the Bible is tainted with factual errors, they say. In this view, authority is the subjective experience of the individual rather than the scriptures themselves. So this view is very subjective. It's all based on what their feelings are, their emotions, or their worldview, rather than being objective. I go to people and say, okay, if you read the Bible and it says certain things, Jesus rose from the dead, okay? That's what it says. That's what the facts are. Here's the witnesses. They give it to us, okay? But the subjective person will say, I can't believe that. Even if it says that he rose from the dead and all these witnesses, I can't accept that because I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. I don't believe it can happen. So there's where faith comes in, right? And so no, I, nobody was around when they, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? But we have to take that on faith, as the writer Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 6, right? Okay? So to me, resurrection actually takes less faith to believe because we got these people writing down that they saw him. John talks about it. If you look at, uh, look at 1 John um, chapter 1, a book we'll be doing. 1 John chapter 1, I love this. John goes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. 1 John 1, 1, which we have seen with our eyes. Who's he talking about? The incarnate son of God, the eternal, incarnate eternal life. That which was from the beginning, that's eternity past he's talking about, which we have heard, we heard him speak, which we have seen with our eyes, we saw him, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, especially after the resurrection. I'm not a ghost, touch me. Put your hand aside. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, the title for Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Eyewitnesses. Luke does this too in the beginning of his, uh, in, in, in his uh, what is it, um, Acts. You don't have to go there, but you can if you want. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Over and over you see this. Acts 1.1, in my former book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I write, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts 1.1, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, the spirit, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So notice that he's ta- he, he, he investigated these things. Luke investigated. He's the greatest historian the church ever had. 
So he investigated these things. So, but the Barthian neo-orthodoxian view is so subjective. It has nothing to do about objectivity at all. They're not letting the Bible speak for itself. So if you're saying God's this way, but that's what you think God, God's telling you in his word how he feels, what he's, what he, who he is, what he is, how he's doing things, what his will is. So as we've seen from this study, the Bible itself claims to be and demonstrates itself to be the word of God. Thus says the Lord, okay? All scriptures God breathed. So these claims of the Bible for itself are both specific and general as a whole in specific sections as well as individual books. Now there are many sources which support the Bible's claim as being the written word of God. I'm going to give you a list of these and we'll finish off the class. First of all, of course, we have the very nature of the Bible itself. The very nature of the Bible cells, uh, itself is a source in which uh, supports the Bible's claim as being the inspired, God-breathed word. There's also the internal witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the believer's human spirit that the Bible is inspired by God. Thirdly, many believers throughout history have testified, even up to this present day, that the Bible is inspired by God due to the fact that it's transformed their lives. And I mentioned this last week, I think, if you told some, I said, I like to go to people, you remember me when I was 18 and 19 years old, thinking I'm going to be a rock star, running around with the women in the bars and, the, and you know, all that stuff, being a rock star, and oh, I'm not going to tell you anything else, but that, 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 doing stuff that probably you did too, you know, that I shouldn't have been doing, but you know what? And where am I now? How can you explain Bill Wenstrom Jr. doing this now at 61? It testifies the fact, and you probably could say the same thing, it testifies the fact that this book is inspired by God. It changed the life of that crooked, little, self-absorbed guy from Norwood, Massachusetts. He's still self-absorbed. He's fighting that. The, the spirit's warring against the flesh. But you know what? He's going a long way from what he used to be at 19 when he got saved. And a lot of you could... I love that, you know, talking to different people in the congregation and... And Ray and I were having a good conversations, and, they, and uh, we were just talking about how, you know, boy, we made stupid decisions when we were younger. I'm tired of making stupid decisions. <laughs> you know, I was like, but God's word transforms us. So I would say, to pre, you know, uh, your character change, what you're doing your, in your life and your priorities and what you value and how, you, you're, how you're an honest and having character integrity in your job and your work ethic, that all speaks to the, to, to, to the fact that this book, which is, your, which is your, the basis for which you and I run our lives and live our lives, we're testifying to the, the, in, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. We're doing it by practicing what the Word of God teaches. We're showing that this book is inspired by God. And there is then the very unity of the Bible. Despite the fact that the Bible has many authors from diverse backgrounds and languages, there's a great diversity of topics in the Bible that are addressed, yet the Bible is unified. Was it over 2,500 years, 40 different authors from different backgrounds? God, the Bible is unified. You can't say it isn't. It, the Bible's the story of salvation, the story of God taking uh, the original creation, which fell in the, with Adam and Eve, and restoring it. Because you look at this, there's, a, there's a, the guy in the very beginning, and then there's, they fall, okay? And then Satan, you know, tempts, uh, deceives Eve, and then he, Adam goes in on it and, and knowingly, and so they fall, plunging the whole human race into sin. 
and enslaved to Satan. And then there's a whole, from there, all the way through to Revelation, you see this long process of God working slowly, it seems like, and very deliberately, and then moving forward and forward, and then finally Christ comes, the Son of God, and he destroys the works of the devil. And we're very close, it's imminent, where we could be, boom, here's the millennial reign. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth, and we're... It's back to where it was in the beginning, but better. Now, we have the divine nature. Adam and Eve didn't have the divine nature like we have. No, they didn't. They were created in the image of God, but the reason why they fell, they had nothing there. You have to have divine power to fight temptation. That's why they couldn't, they were not, they were guaranteed to not make it and fail. So now we get the divine nature, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit indwell us. We're going to get a resurrection body. We perfected. We'll never sin again. That's where it's, the story is going to be ending. It's a, it's a happy story. The story ends. We love it. It's a good ending. It's a great ending. That's why we love movies where you have a great ending. You know? One of my favorite movies of all time is like one I, probably because my mother. And probably because I, I love uh, the, the, the woman is in this, uh, Amy Adams. I think she's adorable. So I, if Amy Adams came in here, I'd probably propose to her. So don't tell her that. So she'd probably run. So, but I love this movie because my mother had red hair and freckles. And even when she had, with dementia toward the end, when we had her at home, we'd watch this movie. Oh, I love this movie. Okay, we know that. So we'd watch the movie about 500 times because she liked it, you know. And uh, so we watched that. And the great thing is, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's going to go and marry this guy. She wants to marry this guy, and the guy doesn't want to, he's dragging his feet, he's a doctor, he's kind of like a snob, and so she's, you know, so she heard this thing, you go to Ireland, and you get this, uh, you, you can get the proposed to the guy, and you know, they call it leap year, okay, so she's on the plane, and she's telling the, the, the guy, he says, who told you that baloney? So she goes into Ireland, and she falls in love with one of this, this guy, who they look, they fight, and they, you know, they're back and like cat and mouse, but they really have an attraction for each other, you know, the whole story. And so they come in, and then, you know, then, you know, she, he comes, finally meets up with her, the, the boyfriend, and he proposes to her, and the, and the guy she fell in love with, the Irish guy, he's like, oh. So he goes back to his bar and uh, does his thing, and then she gets back to ba- Boston, where she came, I thought it was pretty funny, Boston too, and she finds out that... The guy's a loser. He doesn't really want, doesn't love her. So she breaks up with him, hands him his ring, and she flies to Ireland. And she goes, gets there. And the guy, he, she's waiting in there, and she's, oh, my chicken, tell him the chicken is not, he's a, he was a cook. Tell him the chicken is not done right. So he comes back, and, the, and he's making the thing, is the chicken's not cooked right. Who is this? You know, he drops the thing, he walks out, there she is. Oh. So she makes this, uh, you know, kind of like, a, not to propose to him, but, you know, I, Let's, well, I, I, let's agree not to make plans. I'll make, you know, because she was always planning. So she goes, okay. He, but he doesn't say anything. He just walks away. He walks away. And she goes, and the whole, the whole, the whole restaurant's going, oh, the poor thing. And she walks, he walks away. But he was going back to get the ring that he was going to give to her. So he couldn't find her. She's out with the White Cliffs of Dover, whatever. It's beautiful. Okay, right on the right in the, where the ocean, those big cliffs. And she's out there, and you know, she's like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do? And then he comes up. He's, where are you going? Well, you see, I didn't say anything. Typical woman didn't listen to what the guy was saying. <laughs> I, what are you saying? He says, I do want to make plans with you. I want to marry you. And see, so he proposes to her, 
It's a happy ending. That's my whole point of the thing. It's a happy ending. We like happy endings. We like when justice is served. You know, the Clint Eastwood movies. We like the Clint Eastwood, we, you know, the, he comes and there's retribution. The people, like, hang him high. Those guys that hung, strung him up, love that movie. Well, he comes and gets them all at the end. You know, there's nothing wrong with him. There's something wrong with you if you don't like justice, because God loves justice, too. We want a happy ending. Justice is going to be served, and love will reign and be victorious in the end. That's the unified story of the Bible. It's working to an end. God dwelling with his people. And we're his people. He's going to dwell with us. That's a happy ending. Now, there's a fifth source. A fifth source which supports the Bible's claim as being written by the, the Holy Spirit. And it's that of history, in the sense that many archaeological discoveries have confirmed the Bible's claims, that thus, the, thus they defend the Bible's claim of being a di divine book. But I, I would take you to a little uh, quote from, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, was it Unger? Yeah, let me see. Archaeology authenticates the Bible. New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Listen to this. Although there is genuine benefit of archaeological research in Bible lands, especially in dealing with extreme liberalism and many vagaries of higher criticism, yet its subordinate nature appears from several considerations. In the first place, the Bible does not need to be proved either by archaeology, geology, or any other science. As God's revelation to man, its own message and meaning, its own claims of inspiration and eternal evidence, its own fruits and results in the life of humanity are its best proof of authenticity. It demonstrates itself to be what it claims to be to those who believe its message. And so he comes down here, it says, um, despite the truths of these facts, archaeology has an important role in authenticating the Bible, both generally and specifically. They say, generally, scientific archaeology has exploded many extreme theories and false assumptions that used to be paraded in scholarly circles as subtle facts. No longer can higher criticism dismiss the Hebrew patriarchs as mere legendary figures or deny that Moses could write or assert that the Mosaic legislation is completely anachronistic for, an early, for such an early age. These and any other extreme opinions have been shown to be completely untenable by archaeological research. Other examples of general confirmation of the Bible are the results of excavations at Jerusalem, uh, Gibeah, Saul, Megiddo, Samaria, and numerous other Palestinian cities. Cases of specific confirmation, although of course less numerous, are striking. The historicity of Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, the authentication of the name Sargon in Isaiah 21, and uh, the corroboration of Jehoiakim's captivity in Babylon, which I mentioned briefly in passing, 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30, by the actual finding of the name of the king on a cuneiform tablets there are but a few examples of specific attestations. There's also the testimony of Jesus Christ himself who throughout his ministry appealed to the scriptures when defending himself against his enemies or teaching his disciples. He clearly was of the conviction <clears throat> that the Old Testament was inspired by God. So if somebody says, I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they don't, I've met people like this, and they're saved because they believe in Jesus, but they have a problem with inspiration of scripture and inerrancy. I said, if Jesus thought the Bible was inerrant and inspired by God, and you believe that he died and rose again from the scriptures, and rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, I don't see what the problem is, guys. Okay? If he could do that, I think he can, he can inspire the human authors of scripture if he could raise a man from the dead. We can also overlook, can also, can also overlook the fact, and this will be the, my last point, that fulfilled prophecy demonstrates that the Bible is inspired by God. And uh, furthermore, no other book of antiquity or human history 
or in human history, human history has had a greater influence than the Bible, which supports its claims of being inspired by God. Hey, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights were inspired by the Bible. Another interesting fact about the Bible, which supports its claims of being a divine book, is that no other book, no other book, including the Koran, has been attacked like the Bible, or has faced greater scrutiny from men as the Bible. And this, too, supports its claim of being a book which originates from God. And just a couple of things on these, on these prophecies. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, my uh, prophecies of, of uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. Here's my uh, article on Old Testament Messianic prophecies, literally fulfilled by Jesus, which proves the Bible's inspired by God. Let's take, for instance, prophecies concerning his book. He was born of the seed of a woman. Prophecy, Genesis 3.15, fulfillment, Galatians 4.4. Uh, he's the son of God, Psalm 2.7 for prophecy. The fulfillment, Matthew 3.17. Uh, let's see, Herod kills children. Jeremiah 31.15, the prophecy, fulfilled in Matthew 2.16. You can download this from our website. Uh, prophecies concerning his nature, pre-existence, Micah 5.2, the fulfillment, Colossians 1.17, John 17.5. Uh, he, uh, he has a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 is the prophecy. Matthew 3.16 and 17 is the fulfillment. Uh, we have also pr uh, prophecies concerning his resurrection. Prophecy 16.10, the fulfillment, Acts 2.31, his session at the right hand of the Father, Psalm 110, verse 1, fulfillment, Hebrews 1.3. And it's over and over, we go, sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12, fulfillment, Matthew 26.15. This is powerful stuff. Just go learn, learn some of these. And then when you evangelize somebody, or you want to defend the Bible's inspiration, here you go. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Psalm 22. Here it is in, 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 a thousand years later. Read Isaiah 53. It's talking about Jesus. The, that proves the Bible is inspired by God. What a book we have. What a treasure that God has given to us. It is truly worth living our lives for. Truly living, uh, giving everything we can, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength to learn this book and put it into practice, it will always pay off. The best decision you could ever teach your kids about in life is to make it this book a priority. Praying every day to your God and studying God's word every day. I'm not saying you have to be a biblical scholar or a pastor, but make it a part of your daily, before you get up in the morning, before you do anything, pray, prayerful study of the word of God. That's very important. Sanctified time alone with God and then coming and assembling to hear the word of God as we're supposed to do. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. You'll not regret it. And I, may, I'm, I know many of you can say amen to that. Well, let's close in prayer and I'll sing us a song and get us out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this, book, uh, this study of inspiration be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, as we put it into practice and, and carefully consider what we've been taught here with regards to this subject. And I pray it would give us greater assurance and encouragement uh, to face uh, those who uh, contend against the Bible and are, are its opponents. So I help us uh, to uh, minister to people with this information that we got and, uh, and not to get arrogant by the knowledge we have, but to help uh, ourselves first and our walk with you and also help members of the body of Christ that don't know this stuff and also defend the Bible from its attacks. Remember, the Bible is uh, God-breathed and it's both a divine book and a human book, just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was both human and divine. So we thank you for this study tonight and everybody that's here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Okay, let me uh, finish off with this song here. Do 